This morning, uh, we are going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. So we've, we've been walking through 2 Timothy for about, I think we've been about five weeks maybe. Um, but we're catching Paul uh, midstream. He's in the middle of his, uh, this is his last letter in the New Testament. He's writing to Timothy. He's writing from prison. Uh, he's writing from a spot where many, or we could say most, of those that have worked with him at some point have abandoned him. They've kind of like, he's in prison, they have nothing to do with him. Uh, he's writing to Timothy to encourage Timothy to stay steadfast and, and focused and firmly founded on the gospel and in the person of Jesus that Timothy has hoped in, even as many other people uh, turn away and run after something else. Um, and as we do that, as we look at that, today's passage in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 9, if, if I'm just going to be transparently honest with you at the beginning, uh, it's not necessarily a passage that I've been really looking forward to preaching uh, in 2 Timothy, because it's not, and you'll see as we read through it in a moment, it's not uh, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, these nine verses are not, they're not glowingly optimistic. Um, and and if you know me or if you talk to me, I, I I'm a self-confessed. I'm a glass three quarters full type of person. Like I'm a little over half. Uh, so how many of you are, are glass half empty people? If you're just to be honest, you know, I, I don't really want to say that. Uh, how many of you would say you're glass half full? Okay, so if you're glass half empty person, like. This section of scripture, if we're just again just being honest, uh, if we take it just in a vacuum and we don't tie it to the rest of what scripture says about reality, uh, you might you might leave today feeling a little bit like Eeyore, just like man, the whole world is just horrible and it's not going to get any better. Um, and if you're a glass half full person, you're like, wow, that was really devastating. But there's got to be like a silver lining in there somewhere. And good news is we're gonna we're gonna leave you with a silver lining. Um, but Paul is focusing on it. If you remember last week in, in chapter 2, verse 25, um, he talked about how uh, the Lord's servant is not to be quarrelsome, but he's supposed to be somebody who's gentle and kind and, and marked by humility, able to teach. But he's uh, able to correct, in verse 25, correct his opponents with gentleness. And, and what we could draw this out is, and now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, Paul is going to give us a picture of what those opponents' lives and behavior might look like. Um, so so the, the people that Paul is telling Timothy, you are to, to correct with gentleness and kindness and humility, but you're still supposed to be standing steadfastly in your convictions, right? Standing in biblical truth, but, but contending for the truth with gentleness and kindness. This is kind of an overview of what the world looks like that Paul is saying to Timothy, you ought to be marked by humility, gentleness, and kindness in the midst of all of these things. And so as we walk into that, uh, one of the immediate takeaways that you will probably have is, that sounds like a tall order, uh, that Paul would ask Timothy to, to contend for truth with gentleness and kindness, with behavior that looks like what it does in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Um, but with saying that, let's just jump right in. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. He writes, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, 
treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men." Now, how many of you just curse your reading? You're like, I feel really light and bubbly. This sounds really fun. But what you might think on the first reading of this, and maybe it's a passage that you're familiar with, um, but this might be a passage that just confirms for you, uh, what you what you see on the news and everywhere else. So the world seems like a really bad place. right? Like, and, and, and it would also maybe confirm that, man, this, this is not getting any better. And it, what it might cause us to do, and, and this is the caution that I would, I would lay before us before we step any further into this. The caution that I would lay for that is, if we live in a mindset that, that the world is, is getting worse all of the time, and it's not getting any better, there might be a temptation for us to shrink back kind of like a turtle into its shell and be like, if it's getting bad, let's just hunker down and wait it out. Jesus is coming back. He's already won. Like, we'll just kind of step away from the problem. Right? There, there could be a temptation to just shrink back away from all of this and just go, I don't really need all of that negativity in my life. I'm going to surround myself with, with like Bob Ross and fluffy clouds, happy trees. Some of you don't know who Bob Ross is. That's okay. Painter. Anyway. But what I would start us off with is we live in a time where you probably have thought this or you have certainly heard it said um, that, that the world right now, especially in our cultural moment, is worse than it has ever been before, right? Or that it seems like it is accelerating to a worse and worse place faster than it has ever been before. And, and our conclusion from that is usually, certainly, this is close to the end. Certainly, these are the last, like, this has to, like, it can't get much worse. How many of you said that in, like, like the last 10 years, and then every year you're like, okay, I was wrong in 2013, <laughs> wrong in 2014, I was wrong in 2020, you'll be wrong next year, right? Because, like, if you just set your standard of, it like, couldn't possibly get any worse, just, just wait. But silver lining, kind of a backward silver lining. Notice that Paul is writing in the first century to Timothy and saying, Timothy, be prepared, get ready. The time is coming when things will get difficult. And you go, well, how is, that, how is that encouraging? It's encouraging because it, it well, let me back, back step, just one step. It would be important for us to identify what are, what are the last days? When are the last days? And some of us would say, well, the last days are, are, are that, that time in Revelation where things get exceedingly worse, Jesus comes back. That's the last days. But from a church perspective, from, and, and let's take it even not say church perspective, from the very onset of Christianity, there is an understanding that, 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 that when Jesus rose from the dead, like he has ushered in a new kingdom, but he has also ushered in, like we, we are in the last days. The church has always existed in the last days. So what Paul is writing to Timothy is, 
The same, like, so what he wrote to Timothy is just as applicable in the first century as it is in the 21st century. 2,000 years of church history separate us, and yet every church in every season of life could say, man, things are bad. The world is not a good place. And yet, God is overwhelmingly faithful throughout time to bring people to himself, to establish his work, to move by his spirit, to bring people to salvation, to bring them to repentance, to bring them into a right relationship. He, like, God is still working in a world that is messed up. But I want you to see this, um, because Paul is writing this to Timothy. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes we feel like, well, this, is, this seems new. Uh, this seems like a new, it, it's just a, a repackaging of something that's old. Um, but one thing I would encourage you with as we step into this is don't lose hope thinking that we're in the worst times ever and nobody has ever had the challenges that you and I face. The church has always, always faced challenge. The church has always had outside influence challenging it, and as we see in 2 Timothy, it also has always had inside influence of people who are seeking to disrupt what God is doing. Throughout all of church history, this is true. So in the words of Peter, don't think that something strange is happening to you. Something strange, something odd, something spectacular, something out of the ordinary is not happening to you. What you are experiencing in the world that seems like it is going crazy is nothing new. And, and the reason why this is good news, you know, like that's, that doesn't seem like great news. The reason why this is good news is that every encouragement that comes to us through Scripture about how to walk in times of trouble are just as reasonable and practical and applicable now as they were then. If, the, if, if Scripture was written only for easier times that existed in the Wayback Machine, then you and I, where do we place our hope? We say, well, there, there was a lot of hope when, 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 when Christians just had it easy in the Roman Empire. You know, like when they're getting thrown in the Colosseum and eaten by lions. Like, they had it easy back then. They had it easy when they were rounded up in different places. They, they had it easy in the Middle East when, like, they, they get baptized and they're killed within a week because they have abandoned their faith. If we really think that we are living in in just this extremely unique moment in time, then all of a sudden we have an issue that Scripture may not speak to. But Paul says, understand this. There are coming days of difficulty. He says it to Timothy. He says it to you and to me. By the power of the Spirit. There are difficult days coming. But it wasn't just Paul that talked about difficult days coming. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, Allie, I'm not sure if I'm going to read the whole thing. I haven't decided yet. Uh, We might just start off into it and see where we go. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is entering into, he's he's entered into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He's in the week of his crucifixion, and he's sitting on a hillside overlooking Jerusalem with his disciples. And he says about the temple as he leaves it at the beginning through two verses of Matthew chapter 24. He tells his disciples, he's pointing at the building of the temple, and he says, I'm telling you the truth, like this building is coming down. There won't be one stone left on top of another. And they walk out of Jerusalem, and they go up on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem. And his disciples ask him probably a really important question that we're glad that they asked. 
Jesus, when is all this going to take place? You have said that things are going to get pretty bad in Jerusalem. Like, when are those things going to take place? When are, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? In other words, when are the last days coming? And Jesus did not say to them, well, it doesn't really matter to you because you won't be alive to see it. Right? Like, he didn't tell his disciples, well, it's really none of your concern because that's, that's like 2,000 years from now. Like, it, we'll, we'll, we'll tell them later. Instead, he says, first of all, he says, see that no one leads you astray in Matthew 24, verse 4. He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Have you ever, like in your lifetime, have you heard of wars or rumors of war? In the last two years, have you heard of war or rumors of war? In the last six months, have you heard of war, rumors of war? In the last week, have you heard of wars and rumors of war? As has every other civilization for the last 2,000 years. Nothing new. But he says, see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end isn't yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all of these are but the beginnings of birth pains. And so in other words, like, this is, it's, it's building and it's building, and difficulty is, is already starting, but it is coming up. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole earth, or the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see, he goes on to say even some, some, some more uh, specific things that, that, that we might would say applied to Jerusalem, but they might also have a future fulfillment as well. He says, when you see the abomina- uh, abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures were gathered. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the Son of the Son of Man and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, that was really fast. Big mouthful. What is Jesus saying to his disciples? He's not saying to them, this is only something for the future church to worry about. And worry is the wrong word because he says, don't be alarmed. These things have to take place. Things will and must get worse. Difficulty must come. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart. Why? 
I've overcome it. Jesus was preparing his disciples from the very beginning for difficulty. Somewhere along the way, there's a chance that we have just lost our comfort, might be the wrong word, but we've lost our comfort with the difficulty. Somewhere along the way, we have assumed that difficulty is outside of God bringing all things to the right end. However, what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying is at the same time that things are getting increasingly bad or things seem to get worse and difficulty is coming, there is also a commission and a command for the church in the middle of it. It is not just... Guys, I'm really sorry. They're going to kill you, so just be quiet, run away. Jesus does say that they will put you in prison, they'll persecute you for his name's sake. But what 2 Timothy chapter 3 is doing, and what we'll really circle around to next week, is Paul's encouragement for Timothy's, like, the, the, what do you do in the middle of verses 1 through 9, verses 10 through 17, is, is some of the, this is the positive side of how you live in this world. But verses 1 through 9 is the reality that we live in a world that is difficult. And to the extent that Jesus is with his people, guess what? That's okay. We may not like it. We may wish it wasn't difficult. But it's not something strange. And if we were to, to just... Continue to walk in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's kind of verse 1 in a nutshell. Verses 2 through 5, or really 2 through 9, would be a picture or the evidence of a world that is becoming more difficult. There's a laundry list of sinful behavior, sinful attitude, sinful motivation. But within that, I, I want to just consolidate that into what Paul says is, is growing in difficulty is that people will be marked by three loves. Three loves that are, that, are, that are outside of God's design for people. Not just these people, but for any people. And before we dive into the three loves, I do want to give you just, uh, it would be easy again for us to come into this passage and say, oh, these are about those people. These are markers of those people. There's an aspect of each of these three loves that you and I would be able to, to very easily take just a finger and go, that's about me. That could very easily be me. Sometimes that is me. So what is the right response when these things are true of me? So the first one is not, again, it's not just for those outside. And the main target is even not necessarily those who have nothing to do with God or outside, completely cut off from religion or from church. And you see that because in verse 5 it says, they have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Like, there's a lot of people that have nothing to do with Jesus that are perfectly fine without having any appearance of looking like Jesus. And so there's, an, there's, a, there's a segment of people that, that Paul is talking about that are, they appear godly, and yet their hearts aren't right. And if we were to just step back and say, honestly, could that ever be us? That we could want to pursue the appearance of being right with the Lord, and yet our hearts aren't really right with Him. Outwardly, 
We look like we have our stuff put together, but inwardly, things are not right. So the first love that Paul talks about, he says, uh, people will be lovers of self. Mike could sum that up by just saying the primary concern is, what do I want? What makes me happy? Notice some of the the, the descriptors that, that he uses to fill this in. Swollen conceit, pride, arrogance. In verse 6, it's, it, the, the picture of, of, of the motive behind it is creeping into homes to, 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 for their own personal advantage, their own benefit. And as we talked about in previous weeks, one of the greatest challenges that we face culturally is, is the mindset that what is true for me is true for me. What I want is what I want, and it doesn't matter as long as I don't hurt anyone. And we say, wow, I, I see that in all these other people. Man, they really love themselves. To the, like, they think about themselves above everything else all of the time. All they think about is them. And yet, how sneakily tempting is it for us to only, like, for our main focus in life to be, how am I doing? What am I getting? How will this help me? I was thinking about this even, uh, and I mentioned it to Jason the other day, even how easily it creeps into to, to our language without us even thinking about it. We could frame some of the reasons or the motives of why it, we ought to serve the Lord and serve others is what it will do for me. If you will serve, this is what you will get out of it. And maybe before we even sign up on a sign-up sheet, we go, what do I get? I'm not just looking at you. I'm like, this is, hey, mirror. What, 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 what advantage does this have to me if I do it? It's so tempting, isn't it? And it's subtle that it could become, it could switch from, uh, just that could become the sole focus. Loving a love of self that is, all focused on what do I get from this? How does this help my status? How does this help my name? How does this help my reputation? How does this how does this help me? He says that people will be marked by this. And again, we might could really easily look out and go, oh, I could tell you all about these three people and how they love themselves. But one of the, again, one of the challenges that I was I start us off with is is are there any markers of this? Do I recognize any of these things in myself first? Second one, second love, there'll be lovers of money. I am so glad I've never had to struggle with that one, huh? I have never said, you know, if I just had a little bit more money. I've never thought, how could I just have a little bit more to do this project in my house? I've never really thought, how could I, how could I, how could I get just a little bit more? I've never thought in, in, I don't get paid hourly now, but when I got paid hourly, I never thought, if I worked this many more hours, I could do this with it. If I just picked up one more shift, I could do this. But the again, uh, the the love of it, the, the the consuming of it, flowing, and it flows right out of a love for self. 
Because I don't think anybody like loves money just for a selfless purpose, generally speaking. The consuming power of greed is not yet generally others-focused. Well, I'm just working, picking up more shifts so I can do more for you. Right? It's usually, I'm doing this for, for me. It's driven by a thirst for wealth, a hunger, a craving for it. And he, again, in verse 6, you go, how does this look into you? He says, why are they creeping into households and, and like taking capture or captivating uh, people who are, who are easily vulnerable? It's probably for personal gain. People that have something that they want. To increase influence, to increase the income stream. We've said this over and over again, not just in Second Timothy, but just in the, in the fact that we're made in God's image, that you and I and every other person, we've been made to worship. And one of the ways that we worship is with our resources. What we have is a way that we worship. Uh, and so one of the markers of this is how can we funnel worship into my pocket? So one of the aims of this, Paul is, 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 is contrasting who Timothy ought to be as the Lord's servant versus those who are false teachers who are trying to take advantage of others. But it's not just those who have influence in teaching and, and religious leadership. It also could be true of any one of us. Like, how does this, again, what can I get from this? And if you remember back in 1 Timothy, chapter, uh, 1 Timothy 6, Paul has already said in a previous letter, he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Like, because it gains a foothold in it and, it, and it begins to make demands of us. Like, because it has a grip on me. So one of the questions that we would just ask to kind of to get a, a picture of ourselves is like, do, again, do, do I have a hold of my resources or do my resources have a grip on me? And, and how open-handed Am I with him, or, or, or to what extent does the pursuit of more control what I do? He says that they'll be, they'll be marked by lovers of self, lovers of money. And then he says, uh, to drop down in a few verses, he says, lovers of pleasure. Verse 4. Now, again, these, these all kind of dovetail together. But in chapter 2, verse 22, he had told Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And now he says that one of the markers of days that are getting more difficult is that people will be marked by their love of pleasure. Now, again, it's kind of hard to separate love of self, love of money, love of pleasure. And in fact, if you just take the whole laundry list of, of, of things that are, are laid out by Paul, one of the things that we would start to recognize is that, that we could just generally say it's a pursuit of anything other than the Lord that, that results in fruit in our lives that looks opposite of the fruit that God produces in us by His Spirit. But in the case of all three of them, we could say it's the love of self, the love of money, the love of pleasure, by any means necessary. And again, we look at the words that are used about to describe the behavior of the people that Paul is warning about. It says they're abusive. They're without self-control. They're reckless. They're treacherous, or they're, the, the treacherous is kind of like they're betrayers, they're traitors. Um, so they're reckless, they're treacherous, they're slanderous, they're brutal, which is another word for saying savage, without regard to 
And you see, it says, not loving good without regard for the good of others. If we're just to take those words and and flesh them out, if if I read them through one more time, abusive, without self-control, reckless, treacherous, slanderous, brutal, without regard for others. Are those descriptors of people who have an eye towards other people? No, like it is all about capital I. It's all about me. But again, before we move on, these three loves, love of self, love of money, love of pleasure, they're not exclusive to everybody else. So one of the things I would encourage you with this week, ask a question, how do, how do these loves seek a foothold in my life? Do they have a foothold in my life? How do they flesh out? And as we'll see next week, the, the takeaway of this is not we, we all ought to move to the, to the desert and become monks and deprive ourselves of everything in order to, to heighten this love for God. But it is a question of, of what do I do? Where do my affections go? Where should they go to combat these loves building and gaining a foothold in my life? And the red flag of this, and you go, well, how would I even know if these things are true of me? In verse 7, I think we have an idea of, of a little bit of, of how we would know that these things have a foothold or are, or are having their way in us. He says, they're always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Another way we can say that is it, it results in empty spirituality, empty religion. It appears godly, but it's without fruit. It looks good, and yet it doesn't produce the things of God. God's not producing things by his spirit in me. Or another way of saying it is like, I'm always learning and acquiring knowledge, and it could even be good knowledge about who God is, but there's no application. It doesn't produce anything in me. If I'm constantly acquiring for the sake of acquiring so that I can look better and sound better and know the right answers, and yet it doesn't produce a right heart or right action or right motive in me, that would be a good red flag. Now, before we move on there, you'd say, well, that's me sometimes. Hey, that's all of us sometimes, is that if we don't, if we, if we, if we don't be vigilant about this, if we don't recognize it for what it is, many of us, all of us, are able to fall into the trap of just going through the religious motions of things that we ought to do, and yet it's not actually driven by a love for God. It might be because of what I feel like it does for me, and yet, like, and, and hear me on this, it's not that a love for God doesn't, doesn't bring blessing through a right relationship. It doesn't mean that there's not peace and joy and, and, and endurance and things that are good and valuable and while but it's so easy to just make that subtle shift to where that's the pursuit the pursuit is how do i get some of that peace for myself right like and i, I just fill my cup and then i'm, I'm good and then oh, I'm, I'm empty again so an empty spirituality that is appearing to do all the right things but doesn't it's not moving to a right response of who god is and he gives two examples Two examples that would help us uh, kind of see that this, again, is, is even older than Paul writing to Timothy. 
Because he goes all the way back to Moses and says, Here, here's an example of two people, um, Timothy, that, that would typify, like, this is the same thing that's been happening. And so it's not just happening since the first century. He goes back another 800 or 1,000 years. It says, hey, this was popping up. Remember Moses. It says, just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses. If we stop there, you go, the, an important question to ask is, who are those two guys? And what you might find fun about this is if you just if you do your Bible search, you won't find those two names anywhere else in Scripture. You go, well, that's puzzling. Well, then how are we supposed to know who these two guys are? And what's, on top of that, what's interesting is you, you, if you have a footnote to it, it might send you, or a cross-reference Bible, it'll send you to Exodus chapter 7. And it'll talk about the Egyptian magicians. And you go, but they're never named. And so throughout, so Paul names them. And then when you step outside to the extra biblical kind of resources, church history, so early church history, early church writers, all the way back through kind of the rabbis that were writing in Jewish history, identify the two, or they identify two Egyptian magicians and they name them Jonas and Jambres. Okay, so the, the, the example that, that Paul gives Timothy goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 7 when Moses and Aaron go stand before Pharaoh for the first time, asking that Pharaoh let the people of Israel be released from slavery. So if you go to Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle— Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, if we just keep walking through some of the plagues of Egypt really quick, we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. But the first plague, if you remember, uh, God commanded Moses to go out to the Nile River and to stand in the midst of it, and, and he would turn all of the water in Egypt to blood, right? And in, in chapter 7, verse 22 of, of um, Exodus, we see that that, that in, indeed takes place, that all of the water begins to turn to blood. And you'll notice in verse 22, it says, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, if we, went, if we just stop there for a minute, you would remember, or maybe you'd see this for the first time if you hadn't thought of it before, that the magicians are able to duplicate the plague, but they can't undo it. It's kind of fascinating. Right? Like, you would think you would want your magicians to undo the plague, not just go, hey, we can do that too. All right? So the problem's still not solved. The next plague, God sends frogs uh, to just fill the land of Egypt, to take over. And they do. There's frogs coming up out of all the water, covering the land of Egypt. In chapter 8 of Exodus, verse 7, it says, But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and they made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Again, they made frogs come out, but they couldn't make the frogs leave. And then Pharaoh, in, in later in chapter 8, he, he goes to Moses and, and he says, plead with, your, with the Lord to take away the frogs. And so Moses does, and the frogs leave, and Pharaoh rehardens his heart. In the very next plague, then in the plague of gnats, so like tiny flies, really fun little guys, it gets, again, Moses, or Aaron, uh, stretches out his staff and, and, 
and the land of Egypt is filled with gnats in all of the land of Egypt. And what's fascinating here is in verse 18, Exodus chapter 8, verse 18, it says, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. And the magicians are not named trying to duplicate plagues from that point forward. In fact, in the plague of boils in, in chapter 9, it does say that the, the boils, the skin sores, came upon the magicians and all of the Egyptians. I say all that to say, at the end of Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, he says about these people who are making things difficult, who are increasing in ungodliness, who are pursuing all these things other than the love of God, but doing it under the, 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 the shroud of pretending to be right with the Lord. Paul says they won't get very far because their folly will be plain to everyone just like it was with the Egyptian magicians. For a season, they look legitimate. For a season, they look effective. But in time, they will be seen for what they truly are, which is not legitimate. Appearing godly, but not walking with the Lord. So then the question is, what do we do with this? For one, we go back up to to 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26. Because this is, this is telling Timothy, this is setting the stage for Timothy for what happens in verses, in chapter 3, 1 through 9, and what will follow in verses 10 through 17. In a world where there are opponents who are opposed to truth, corrupted in mind, and disqualified from faith, Paul says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And before we we read the next part, and again, how they are marked in 2 Timothy 3, verse 8, opposed to truth, corrupted in mind, disqualified from the faith. And you say, what hope do they have? You say, by themselves, they have no hope. However, Jump back up to chapter 2, the second part of verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Changing them from a vain pursuit of knowledge that never satisfies to a knowledge that actually leads to a right understanding of truth. And they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Through a right faith in Jesus, there is hope even for those who are typified as the worst possible people, right, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And I, and I recircle back to the question we asked last week, or maybe a different version of it. Do I really believe that God's arm of salvation can reach to anybody? Do I really believe that God can lead people who are abusive, brutal, treacherous, reckless, without self-control, slanderous, uh, without regard for anybody else's, do I really believe that God can lead those people to repentance that leads to salvation? And I really hope your answer is yes, because you were one. And apart from the grace of God, you are one. And, you are, and even as I say, some of these things we continue to wrestle with, that's because we are still wrestling flesh versus spirit. 
And God is continually working us and, and conforming us to the image of his son. But do we really believe? Is it a conviction that we hold? That a faithful, humble, kind, truthful gospel witness is effective in a broken world? Not just up here do we believe it. Do we believe it in practice where we are sharing the hope that is in Christ with people who are marked in verse 25, chapter 2, as opponents. Opponents of the truth. Are we calling them to a better love? So found really quickly in chapter 3. It says, lovers of pleasure rather than what? Lovers of God. There's a better love. A love that calls us to die to self and live for his purpose. A love that frees us from the foothold of all other loves. A love that allows us to pursue the things of God by the power of his spirit that he provides. A love that is marked not by abuse, recklessness, treachery, slander, brutality, without self-control, without a love for others, but is marked by faith, peace, love, kindness, gentleness, self-control, humility. And you and I cannot produce that in ourselves. If it is in us, it is the gift of God doing it that comes through salvation, through Jesus alone. The love of God is typified in the love that God displayed when he sent Jesus to die for sinful people who were marked looking like chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Which is why Paul can, can talk about, you know that all of these people in, in 2 Corinthians, all of these types of people will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Right? But when his mercy appeared through Jesus and brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, transferring us from death to life, enabling us to love him in return. There's a better love, and that's what we are to call people towards, and that is what you and I are to pursue. So that the antidote, if you want to say that, if, if I see a foothold of, of love for self, love of money, love of pleasure, love of, love of things, gaining a foothold in my life, producing an empty spirituality, what do I do? And it sounds really simple, but you, you stop and you pursue a better love. You stop and you pursue Jesus. And we invite other people to do the same.